It's 2013. It's the last meet of the regular season for this beginner's tenor tennis team. The other team would go on to win the state tournament that year. The schools are polar opposites. And Blake is one of the richest private schools in the state, and Edison is an urban public school. During one of the matches, an Edison player broke a string on his racket, and he didn't have a backup racket. The rules state then that he must forfeit the match if he doesn't have another racket to play with. His season would end with a forfeit. It's not the way anyone wants to go out. Instead, one of the Blake players loaned him his backup racket, and the meet continued. Blake won convincingly, and Edison's season was finished. After their meet, a captain from Blake's team decided to do a gently used racket drive to gift the players at Edison. They came up with more than 20 gently used rackets. Those used rackets were nicer than any racket of any Edison player. When Blake won the state tournament, they had taken a picture with the team from Edison as well, holding the trophy. It's an act of sportsmanship between these two schools and kindness that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Why would these students from Blake donate perfectly good rackets to another school that they knew nothing about? To this day, the Edison coach still calls it one of the greatest moments that he has ever witnessed in his life. It was an unbelievable moment. Whenever you experience or see a moment of grace like that, you don't easily forget it. It makes an impression in your mind. Someday you might look back at it and ask yourself, did that really happen? Because it seems too good to be true. So take pictures and write down those memories. Capture those moments so you don't forget. And tell others about them. Today we get to look back at one of those recorded moments of unbelievable grace. Nothing in this account makes much sense other than God showcasing his unbelievable grace. I invite you to open up your Bibles with me to 2 Kings chapter 5. As we read verses 1 through 14. 2 Kings chapter 5, verses 1 through 14. And again, I'll invite you to stand if you are able out of respect for God's word. Reading in Jesus' name. Now Naaman, captain of the army of the king of Aram, was a great man with his master and highly respected, because by him the Lord had given victory to Aram. The man was also a valiant warrior, but he was a leper. Now the Arameans had gone out in, the, in bands and had taken captive a little girl from the land of Israel, and she waited on Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, I wish that my master were with the prophet who is in Samaria, then he would cure him of his leprosy. Naaman went in and told his master, saying, Thus and thus spoke the girl who is from the land of Israel. Then the king of Aram said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. He departed and took with him ten talents of silver and six thousand shekels of gold and ten changes of clothes. He brought the letter to the king of Israel, saying, And now, as this letter comes to you, behold, I have sent Naaman my servant to you, that you may cure him of his leprosy. When the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man is sending word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? But consider now and see how he is seeking a quarrel against me. It happened when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, that he sent word to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Now let him come to me, and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and his chariots and stood at the doorway of the house of Elisha. Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, 
Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh will be restored to you, and you will be clean. But Naaman was furious and went away and said, Behold, I thought he will surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God, and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. Then his servants came near and spoke to him and said, My father, had the prophet told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he says to you, wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Father God, these are your words, and your word is true. We pray this morning that you would sanctify us in your word. Sanctify us in your truth, Lord. Help us to understand your word and to see how your word applies to us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. The passage begins by describing Naaman to us. He is a captain of the army. And which army is he the captain of? You would expect to read the army of Judah or the army of Israel, but it's neither of those. The army of the king of Aram. He's an Aramean army captain, a Gentile, a pagan. And we're told something else about this man, that he is a valiant warrior and highly respected. And the reason why is intriguing. Verse 1 says, because by him the Lord had given victory to Aram. The Lord is the Lord of lords and king of kings, not just of the Israelite lords and kings. He is Lord of all nations even of these heathen nations like Aram. We read here that the Lord was raising up Naaman and giving him victory in battle. In verse 2, we read that an Israelite girl had been captured and serves Naaman's wife. Naaman has an Israelite slave, one of God's people, and she was taken captive by one of a band of Arameans. They were enemies of God's people. They weren't friendly neighbors. So what is God doing? giving Naaman military victory, the enemies of Israel giving them military victory. And why is he allowing this girl to be his slave? Why doesn't God bring her back to her home and her own family? It's another aspect of this testimony that is completely unexpected. The girl is concerned about Naaman and gives his wife a reason to hope. And in verse 3, we get a glimpse of what God is going to do. Naaman has another characteristic that I had skipped over in verse 1. He's also a leper. He has a skin disease. Not being an Israelite, he isn't aware of all the stipulation that God had instructed his people when it came to leprosy, but he still recognizes it as a problem. And it was. Leprosy is a disease that attacked the nervous system. It would lead to deformities, oftentimes people injuring themselves because they can't feel pain to warn themselves of danger. There's some accounts of lepers having their fingers eaten by rats in their sleep because they don't feel it to wake up. They're unaware of the problem. Sounds pleasant, doesn't it? Leprosy is a problem. Lepers were to be avoided, and it was contagious. Naaman, this great military captain and valiant warrior, has this skin disease that he can't do anything about, and he wants to be healed. It's a blow to his reputation but it gets even worse. In verse 3, it's his servant, this foreign servant, who tells his wife 
that she wishes he could see the prophet in Samaria so that he could be healed. Naaman catches wind of this idea. A man who is used to ordering soldiers around is now finding himself taking orders from a little girl. And to make it worse, she's a foreigner. Nevertheless, Naaman tells the king of Aram, and the king sends him off to Israel with a letter, with lots of money and some clothes. Naaman follows his orders, and he delivers a letter to the king of Israel. After all, the king had told him to do it, and so he went. And then the king of Israel receives Naaman, receives this letter. He reads it, and he tears his clothes. It's a message from this foreign king who, by the way, has a flourishing army that the Lord is giving victory to and notifies the king of Israel that he is somehow supposed to heal this man of his leprosy. The king views this as a threat. Cure this man or else. This is how he takes this letter to read. He knows that he's in over his head, and he knows that there is nothing that he can do to cure this man's disease. He says, am I God? Do I have the power of life and death? Can I heal? What's he supposed to do with this leper? The king rightly acknowledges that he is not God, but he fails to acknowledge the God who heals. He fails to acknowledge that he can point this leper to the God who is able to cure him of his disease. Thankfully for Naaman, though, Elisha, the prophet of the Lord, catches wind of what the king had done. And he tells the king to send Naaman his way. And then he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. If the king won't point this foreigner to the Lord, then the Lord's prophet surely will. Elisha tells the king to send him his way, and the king sends Naaman along. Again, not having much choice because this is the word of a king. Naaman follows his orders. And this time, he doesn't visit a king. He's not going to see some foreign dignitary, but a prophet. A prophet of some god that he doesn't serve. And when he gets there, he notices he's not invited to his house. He's stuck outside beyond the threshold of the door. He stands at the doorway and waits to be healed. Elisha gives him the prescription, go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh will be restored to you and you will be clean. Naaman doesn't take too kindly to these instructions. He had his own preconceived idea of how he would be healed. He'd go to the prophet's house and say, okay, prophet, do your thing. Make me better. Heal me so I can get on my way and go back to my important life in Aram. The prophet, he thought, would call on the name of the Lord his God, wave his hands over him, and voila, he'd be good to go. But that's not what Elisha does. Naaman laments how his hometown rivers were far superior than the Jordan River. Why do I have to come all of this way to go into this muddy river when I've got two perfectly good rivers back home? Why did I have to come here? To humiliate myself by exposing my disease to everyone, by getting passed along like a hot potato, only to be told to wash up in this dirty river. You don't think I've tried that already? Why couldn't he just wash in a river at home? He's ticked, and he storms off. But again, it's his servants that reason with him. Why not give it a shot? If Elisha would have told you to do some impossible task, you at least would have tried to do that. So why not just go and wash in the river? What have you got to lose? And once again, Naaman is given unsolicited advice from a servant. Unsolicited advice is what we all love to receive, right? Especially from someone who is far lower on the totem pole than ourselves. That's not what a reputable captain is used to. 
But Naaman heeds his advice. And verse 14 records what happens. So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child. And he was clean. Naaman was cleansed. His leprosy is gone. He was healed. Somehow, but how? What happened? How did he get cleansed? Was the water in the Jordan really that good? Did it have some kind of murky or some kind of medicinal purposes lurking around in the murky liquid that could cure leprosy? No, it had nothing to do with the quality of the water at all. The next verse says that he went back to Elisha with all his company and he confesses that there is no God in all the earth but the God in Israel. The story ends with Naaman's confession of faith. He recognizes that it's not that this water has some powerful qualities in and of itself, but it is the spirit or the word of the Lord coming and his obedience to that word. Naaman recognizes the hand of the Lord in his cleansing. Here is a valiant pagan warrior, a captor of God's people, who develops a skin disease which would seem to be fitting karma for him, seems to be that God is paying out what he needs to pay out to make sure justice happens. But in the end, we don't see justice, no. In the end, we see that he is healed by the Lord, only to return back to being a captain of the army, which will eventually come against God's people. An army which, in the near future, would come against these very same Israelites. What about this account makes sense? Absolutely nothing. Why is God healing this person? Why doesn't God let this servant girl free? Why is Naaman listening to servants? Why is Naaman going to a foreign king to find help? Why is God healing him? Nothing in this makes sense unless you understand the depth of God's unbelievable grace. And then once you see that, then suddenly not only does it make sense, but it becomes relatable to our everyday lives as well. What is the Lord up to in this chapter? The text begins with Naaman as an enemy of God and ends with Naaman being cleansed by God. Elisha doesn't use the word healed here. He very well could have because it was a disease that needed to be healed, and in fact it was healed. But he says something with more power, with more information for us. He says not only is Naaman healed from his disease, but he uses the word clean. Naaman is clean. He's a Gentile. He's a heathen. And yet he becomes clean. Clean enough for a prophet of God to call him clean. Cleansed. No longer does he have his sins on him anymore. But he is clean. He is pure. He is ritually pure. He is ceremonially pure. He is a children, a child of God. Could God really make his enemy into one of his children? And would he do it? We can ask the question all day long, why would God do it? Would he do it? Can he does it? And the answer is, undoubtedly, he can. And undoubtedly, he does. And that's the only reason why you and I can have any hope or assurance that we can be saved today. Before we go thinking that we're somehow entitled to God's grace because of our own lives or with the privileges that we've been given in this life, or that we're somehow different from the ones who don't believe in God, Paul tells it how it is in Ephesians chapter 2, which Lane mentioned last week. We were enemies of God, every one of us. 
We were children of wrath, every one of us. We were dead in our transgressions and sins, every one of us, hopeless. Whether we realize it or not, we are a lot like Naaman. We are enemies of God. But then something happens. Something happens in verse 4 that drastically changes that trajectory. God acts. But God being rich in mercy because of his great love, with which he loved us, which with which he loved enemies, which with he loved children of wrath. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. So that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. The way that God acts here in 2 Kings chapter 5 seems to not make a whole lot of sense to us. But yet when we look deeper into it, we see that it's the exact same way that God has acted throughout history. He acts that way in the Old Testament. He's acted that way in Ephesians 2, and it's the same way that he acts today. Calling sinners, graciously calling out his enemies and cleansing them, adopting them to be his children. We're again reminded of our helpless, sorry state. As we remember from confirmation class, I cannot by my own reason or strength Believe in Christ my Lord or come to him. We can't do it, no matter how much we try. But the Holy Spirit has called me by the gospel, has enlightened me with his gifts, and sanctifies and preserves me in the true faith. While we were enemies with God, while we were actively opposed to God's goodness and God's grace, God intervenes throughout human history. He intervenes throughout our lives and he saves us. When Naaman heard that all he had to do was to get clean was to dip in the Jordan River, he's furious. But something so simple, something that he could have done back at home in rivers that were far better than this river, he doesn't understand what all is at play here. And we can often react in the same way. When we realize that we are cleansed by God's grace alone through faith, then it begins to make us uncomfortable. Because the different separations that we like to make between us and them, whoever they are in our minds, to separate ourselves from this category of people that we might look down on, we realize that we're really, in reality, no different. We realize that we too were enemies of God and children of wrath. We realize once again that it's, we are saved by grace and it's a free gift that cannot be repaid. It's unexpected, and it's unbelievable. And we want to do something. Why would anyone deal so kindly with an enemy? Why would anyone turn the other cheek? Why would anyone give of their one and only son so that their enemies have the opportunity, the chance, and the possibility to be healed? So that their enemies wouldn't receive what they rightfully deserve. Paul reminds us that it's only through Jesus that this is possible and that this is done. Jesus is the only one that declares peace for us. He's the only one that can pay the penalty and that has paid the penalty. And it's being connected to Jesus that saves us and cleanses us. But how does that happen? How are we connected to Christ since he has ascended into heaven? How can we be united with him? And here's another way that we can find ourselves in this passage with Naaman. How are we clothed with Christ? It's not by works. 
It's not by deeds. It's not by accomplishing some super hard or super spiritual task on our end by fasting and praying and all of that stuff. But it's only by the kindness of God and his love for mankind in which he saved us. Not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And just like Naaman was washed and healed, so you and I are washed and healed by the work of God through a washing of regeneration when we were baptized and God places his name on us. Like Naaman, it's easy for us to bristle up against this idea of washing of regeneration. It doesn't make sense to us. We don't understand how it works. How can this little child who comes to the Lord in baptism be saved? How can they have faith? How can they believe? How can anyone have faith? How can anyone believe? How can any enemy of God be reconciled to him? It's through Christ and only through Christ. Christ washes us, Christ renews us. He unites us to himself through his word. He does it in ways that we don't understand. He does it in ways we often find unbelievable. How can hearing this great word of the gospel of what Christ has done, how can simply hearing these things create faith in our hearts? How can a little ceremony with water create faith? How can God forgive our sins through the elements of bread and wine? It doesn't make sense. And yet the word of God stands forever, reminding us of his promises, telling us again of what Christ has done, reminding us that we too are saved by grace, that we are kept by grace. God's grace and blessing came to Naaman by the word of the prophet, by God's word. God's grace and promise and blessing comes to us through his word of promise as well. As Naaman believed, as we believe, we too are cleansed. God's word comes to us while we were yet sinners, creates faith in our hearts, and cleanses us. It maintains faith, it builds faith in our hearts, and continues to cleanse us on a daily basis. It's simply unbelievable grace, this grace of God. But it's the same unbelievable grace which comes to us through his word, which sparks and ignites faith and creates faith in our hearts and causes us to believe, redeeming us saving us and cleansing us so that we too are pure and connected with Christ. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for the ways that you have worked in the past, for the ways that you work today. Thank you, God, that you are the same God in the Old Testament as the God in the New Testament. We thank you for your grace, that you are a God who saves sinners, who saves enemies. You're a God who has reconciled us to yourself through Christ and his blood. Jesus, we pray that you would help us to receive this message, to stand in this message, and to remember again that we are saved by grace through faith alone. Father, we pray for those who are continued, continuing to be enemies opposed to you, that you would reach out to them in your grace and save them as well. All these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.